The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Welcome, everybody, to episode 40 of the Ascent of Board Games. That's right, four decades if you listen to one episode a year, which you shouldn't do because that will take a really long time. And nothing we talk about will be relevant. You're like, assuming it was relevant to me first. I mean, yeah, yeah <laughs> fair, fair point. So we are here hanging out in person talking about games. This month, we're going to be looking at spatial arrangement games, which is to say games in which the arrangement of pieces on the board is crucial to the play experience. I'm finding it hard to articulate this. We just had a big discussion of it this morning because, I mean, in some sense, checkers and go and chess are spatial arrangement games because you are putting pieces on the board in certain places and letting them do things. What we're talking about are games that frequently feature tetrominoes. We'll be using that word a lot in this episode. I've been thinking about your comparison to Go and Checkers, and I think one of the reasons that Checkers does not qualify for me is something I kind of wish I'd thought of earlier. Does placement of pieces need to happen during play as opposed to during setup for these games? I think yes. Because like that would mean that checkers, while there is some semblance of spatial arrangement in that game, the game itself is more of the abstract strategy because all of the placement has been done prior to playing the game. Well, no, you're you're moving your pieces the whole time. That's that's I mean you're 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 placing this piece here. Right, but it's already on the board. As opposed to a lot of the games we're talking about, you are placing pieces as you play rather than during setup. I mean, you technically mm-hmm. do place pieces during checkers if you crown a checker. Well, you're just upgrading a piece. Yeah, I could, I could see that. I could see that argument. You're not really getting a new piece on the board. You're just upgrading one. Huh, okay. Well, Some, something to think about. Yeah, I don't think that changes our list. No, it doesn't. Yeah, basically we went through before recording today and edited out a lot of ones that either we didn't feel really were that interesting or that didn't have enough going on in the spatial arrangement world. We've still got a lot of games because it's a very popular setup. And there are several hundred more we could Oh, pick. sure. There's a bazillion. We've got a bunch of games to talk about and hopefully you'll find it interesting. You're going to definitely want to check out the notes on this one because it's going to be very picture dependent. Uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to describe all of these in a purely audio medium. So I'm we'll excited. See. We'll see what oh, happens. Especially when we move from two-dimensional spatial arrangement to three-dimensional spatial arrangement. No spoilers. <laughs> so Frank, as is traditional, has gone back and done some research and, you know, leaving aside, like we said, Go and Chess and things like that. He has discovered what he is classifying as the first spatial arrangement game. Maybe. I'm pretty sure there are others because this is 1889, which seems a little late. Mm-hmm. But I'm going for La Pipo Pipette, designed by Francois-Edouard Anatole Lucas, a French mathematician. You would know this as dots and boxes, boxes, pigs in a pen, whatever. And it's, you know, that pen and paper game you play with where you have a grid of dots. You fill in a connection between, you know, draw a line. Once a box is completed, you put an X or a slash or color in. Or initial the box. Or, yeah. 
And so it's a simple two-player spatial game where you're trying to basically not set up the third line of any box and create chains and everything. So sell me on why I would need to purchase a boxed version of You totally <laughs> wouldn't. Uh, but there are, actually. There are boxed versions with a bunch of pads. Yippee. And there's actually a couple plastic versions. There's one called Boxes from the 50s, which consists of little colored squares and lines that you place on a plastic molded board. Jeez. How easy is it to find a complete box of that? <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> actually, now that I've said it out loud, you know what I want? I want somebody to come out with a little like fence meeples that you put out and then you put pigs or like cows Uh or like you could even have it be more than two player count and have like different farm animals if you set up the board a little bit differently you could use some of the pieces from like twixt oh totally yeah but yeah i mean this one obviously inspired the martin gardner classic sprouts which is fairly interesting but you place dots on the middle of lines and connect lines but that's a weird arbitrary directed or non-directed graph thing that's much weirder. But yeah, I mean, it's a simple game. I'm sure everyone's played it. If you haven't, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Did you go to grade school? Yeah. yeah. I feel like I feel like that's one that hit its peak for me. Yeah. I was taught it as Pigpen, my great-grandfather, yeah. so there. And then we wait not quite 100 years in which nothing especially interesting happened from a, no, from a game all. design no, standpoint. No, just in general, nothing interesting. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, there might have been some world wars or something in there, yeah. but nothing that's, you know, relevant to what we're talking about. Okay, so let's talk about Acquire, uh, designed by Sid Saxon, published by 3M in 1964. And, like, Acquire has had a fascinating history as a game. The reason it made it onto this list is during Acquire, you'll have a hand of six tiles, and there's a grid of one through 12 and A through I, right, to form a grid. And you'll have a hand of tiles of specific points on this graph. 9E, 8G, 3G, 2E. On your turn, you'll place one of them, and if that tile is adjacent to another tile, you can then found a corporation and get some stocks from that corporation. Over the course of the game, each of these corporations will potentially be growing. They might get merged into a bigger corporation, and then the people who have the smaller corporation get some stocks from the bigger corporation. The board gets more and more filled in. Once a company is bigger than 11, I think... They can no longer merge with another corporation. They're too big. They can absorb smaller ones, but you know if there are two 11s, all the spaces between them are now unplayable, right? Because they can never right. merge, right? They can never touch. Right, and the bigger a company gets, the more valuable its stock becomes. So you want to figure out which of these companies is going to have the most growth. So you'll look at the tiles in your hand and say, well, I could make that one a little bit bigger, or there's this small company here. I have the tile that will merge it with this big one, so I'll buy a lot of stock in the small companies. It's just a classic. I mean, it's mm-hmm. there's been a bunch of different printings. My favorite is still the Avalon Hill big box version, which is the one I own with big, chunky plastic corporation buildings yeah, and that gorgeous. sort of thing. I do enjoy that Avalon Hill version of this game because it has a really good table presence mm-hmm. that has yet to be matched by any other version of this game. Uh, Schmidt Spiel has one that's nicer. Bless you. Uh, what's what's up with the Schmidt Spiel? 94 Schmidt Spiel has one. big plastic things, a full giant Milton Bradley size box. Mm. Nice big chunky bits and everything. 
wait, 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 wait. Okay, so hold on a sec. Brian just pulled up a version of the choir that you were talking about. You failed to mention the giant signs on the top nice. of the building. Nice. How do you know what corporations <laughs> they are, Mike? One of which I, I took me a second to get there, but I thought it just said liquor. <laughs> For listeners at home, it just says Luxor, but like... <laughs> Mike's mind is at this morning. Oh. It is a nice version, see? <laughs> I think we need to post that picture because yeah, that, that's pretty nice as well. Is it yeah. as hard to find as the Avalon Hill version? Totally. Okay. Also, I don't think there's... Probably harder. I've got one now. Of course, <laughs> of course you do, Frank. no one. But yeah, acquires a, a classic game for a reason, right? Oh, still, totally. It still plays totally great today the kind of the core mechanic of forming these corporations and having them get merged and having to kind of evaluate early on and making the right guesses and also getting a little lucky to be the winner just works beautifully together yeah it's a good game and uh i don't play it as often as i should which is true of pretty much every game i own (laughs) brian do you want to play a board game Excellent. But what I really want is to hear Frank describe this next game <laughs> using only words. Using only words, huh? Without moving my hands, do I have to sit on my hands? I mean, you can move them, but our audience will not see them, so it's not going to help. So Axiom is 1988, designed by Michael Seal, self-published by Seventh Seal. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and he redid a, a newer version in the 2000s with magnets. <laughs> and... By the fact that you need magnets, this is a 3D game. You have two pawns and 12 cubes, and the board is made of the 12 cubes, which start in a 2 by 2 by 3 grid, or cube, or rectangular thing. And basically, the object of the game is to move your pawn onto the face of the same cube as your opponent's pawn. It's only a two-player game. If you do that, you win. You capture them. Game over. The cubes have little pyramids nubs as well as recessions and you can't move across a nub and the pieces can obviously only fit in a recession and on your turn you move upon you can move orthogonally or diagonally wrapping around the edges of cubes in this 3d space of this board that you probably hopefully put on a lazy susan or else you're gonna hate life <laughs> like one of the versions is an elevated platform no no oh. No, most people tend to play it on a lazy Susan because you have to look all the way around uh-huh, uh-huh. because the game is so freaking hard. And that's it. You can move a pawn or cube. And when you move a cube, you can relocate it anywhere you want, which changes the board in ways that are just terrifying and working out the ramifications of a move because these pawns don't just sit on the tops of cubes. They can be on the sides, technically the bottoms if you've got a really... No, I don't think they can sit on the bottoms anyway, but... That's it. So this is a fancy turntable made by Michael Seal, who's a designer. Ah, <laughs> like this is really that's how the you convention demo play version, that's exactly. Also, but also is an elevated platform, so the bottom of your structure is also a Playable. viable playfield. Okay. What? <laughs> yep. Just you've sh- just show blown Frank. Oh my show Frank these pictures. It's a very. Oh insane. my. God, <laughs> but it's supposed to up. buy Michael Seal, so like it is a is an official variant. I I am looking and oh my god, it hurts! It hurts so bad. <laughs> um, I mean, I I ha- like what you can't with words. What I mean, can, can you, Joe? <laughs> well, I mean, no words don't do this like this nonsense justice. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated. It's like 
would you call this like 3D chess or yeah? I mean, it's uh, more 3D uh, checkersy. It's I like guess? Escher chess. Right. Like, oh, it yeah, that's a that's a good way. To, I think mm-hmm. that's a good way to call uh, it. You're not just moving your pieces; you're moving the board. Does the state of the board exist only in my mental frame of reference? <laughs> so it's like what I see, what exists in the game, and the same is true for my opponent. Yeah, right. totally. I mean, yeah, there's no time travel or anything. It's a physical representation <laughs> of this stupid board that. It's going to hurt your brain. And you start playing. You go, okay, I get this. It's only a two by two by three grid. I see how things wrap. A couple of cubes move and you're like, oh, 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 oh. Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of Hive a little bit where just like everything is constantly changing. It's like, I don't know what I can even do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is actually worse. Promise. Well, sure, it's but three-dimensional. <laughs> yeah. Is it worse in a better way, or is it just like an unplayably complicated game? It's mostly because in Hive, you're extremely restricted by right. connections. Right. There are a lot of moves that you can do with the board. You can't move something with a piece on it, mm-hmm. like Hive. Right. Even then, there's still a lot of cube moves, and understanding the ramifications of those moves is so hard because you're trying to do it in 3D space. Sounds fascinating. Yeah, it is a great game. Well, mine now seems very boring. <laughs> oh, one more thing about Axiom. If you are familiar with those connector cubes that like elementary schools have where they've got like one protruding bit and a whole bunch of indentions that you can connect other blocks to, it reminds me like somebody took a bunch of those and said, well, what if I made a game out of this? Yeah. Well, you much. should you should start getting a bunch of preschoolers <laughs> together and teaching them Axiom at a very young age, and then they'll conquer Ooh, the board gaming I future. I love it. Just breed a, a generation of super gamers. Super gamers. <laughs> no, wait, then they'll, they'll beat us at everything. We don't want that. Ah. Yeah. The next one I wanted to talk about is a long-term favorite of mine. I'm not usually a big fan of abstract strategy games, but I do quite like this one. This is Blockus, which was released in 2000 by Educational Insights, designed by Bernard Tavitian. And I apologize if I've botched that name, but that's a standard thing for us. So you get it. Anyway, Blockus is a big empty grids, probably on the order of 20 by 20, I think. Mm, yeah, something like that. And basically each player has a set of very nice acrylic pieces that are the various combinations of their tetronomos. Basically, you have five square ones, four square ones, three square ones. And, you know, there's a total of, I think, 21 pieces in each set. And the rules are very simple. You start in a corner, you place a piece. And all of your future pieces have to connect to one of your existing pieces on a diagonal, like the corners have to touch, but the sides of your pieces can never touch. This sounds very simple, but, you know, as you basically are starting to expand out and your own pieces are limiting where you can go and also your opponent's pieces are limiting where you can go, it quickly becomes a question of sort of finding a tiny little gap in your opponent's stuff where you can slip in a piece and then you can play a bunch of pieces kind of in their backfield where they can't go because they're blocking themselves. It's simple to explain. It plays relatively fast, you know, maybe half an hour for a four-player game. It's very pretty. It's very elegant. It's pretty mean. Yeah, it certainly (laughs) can be. Suddenly you realize the territorial that there's just not enough space. Those first couple turns like, yay, he plays a piece. Yay, he plays. Oh, wait. Wait, you cut me off. Now you You just place this and you cut off three (laughs) of my corners and I'm very angry about (laughs) it. 
like I said, it's visually very striking and it's a lot of fun to play and I highly recommend it. I yeah. think it's still in print 20 years I, later, I which, right. yeah. which speaks well of, of how. The clear acrylic uh, on the gray board just pops yeah, amazingly. No, it's, 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 amazing. it's very It's like you're making a stained glass window of anger and rage. <laughs> fun fact about Blockus, though. This was the first board game that was shown on the board gaming anime. Was it? It was. What's the name of that show again? Uh, Afternoon Dice Club. After School Dice Club. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like that anime is fascinating because they basically have like a, what if we took an instructional how to play video on board games and made a character driven anime? And gave it a plot. <laughs> uh, there's a kind of a sequel to it, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. What, do they get into RPGs? These young girls' Gateway. lives are changed <laughs> the day they discovered Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, yeah, that's Dark Dungeons. Dark Dungeons? Yeah. <laughs> Oops. Okay, anyway. Anyway, now we have a game coming up that we all agreed should be in this episode, but that I don't think any of us actually like. So, so we made Mike talk about it. <laughs> okay. No, I like so it fine. We have all in our board gaming careers outgrown this game. Oh, there was definitely a time in which I enjoyed Carcassonne. And that time was when it came out on the Xbox 360. Yes. Yeah. 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 So Carcassonne originally came out in 2000 from Klaus Jurgen Wearied. Nailed it. Yeah. Nailed it. And was uh, published by Hans and Glock and Rio Grande Games. So in this game, this game, <laughs> you are building the French countryside. You have like a handful of meeples and a handful of tiles. And you basically pick a tile and can connect it to a tile that is already on the board using matching sides. So sides of tiles can either be fields, they can be cities, and they may or may not have roads and or rivers. When you place a tile, you can choose to place a meeple on some component of that tile. So it's like you can place the meeple on the road, and then you are now in control of that road. Unfortunately, that road might meet up with another road in the future, which might also be owned by somebody. So then I think whoever has the most segments that they own gets the newly merged road. And the same can happen with cities. And then there all are also abbey tiles that if you surround, you get points based on how many surrounding tiles. And then, of course, there are the fields, which are an absolute nightmare to track and score. So Fields are the, so I hope, the I'm hoping for the future. <laughs> right. Hopefully like, this gets close and I get lots of points. The problem with fields is that once you place a, a meeple on a field, it's stuck there. You are not getting it back. They are worth a lot of points because you get points based on how large that field is. They're potentially worth a lot of right. points. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But again, if those connect to somebody else, only the person with the most meeples in the field will get the points. I'm not going to say that this game is bad because it is a good game and everybody should play it at some point in their gaming career. But what, are we 20 years out now? This game holds a special place in the history of my gaming experiences that I do not wish to go back and visit. And if you want to play Carcassonne, go play it on the Xbox or <laughs> the computer, because scoring manually is a headache and a half. Yeah, when I first played it, I was pretty deep into game, and I was like, oh, that's cute. And then people kept 
playing it. It's, oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's what happened to me. Because, I mean, it's a perfectly cromulent game, but people were just playing a ton of it, and I didn't find it all that interesting. It's a good game, but I think there are a lot of things I would rather spend my time playing. But the aughts were an interesting time in gaming because that was a period of games where people were hungry for more. Yeah, and this was one of the first, uh, certainly the first big tile placement game. Because, like, the same thing kind of happened with, like, Dominion, where Dominion's a perfectly cromulent game. Mm -hmm. People just played it so Damn. Well, I mean, just like Carcassonne, it was sort of the first of a new Mm -hmm. genre of games. And then I could also point at Puerto Rico Mm -hmm. and Settlers of Catan. Yeah. Where it's like, these are all good games. I just would be fine never playing. (laughs) Right, exactly. They were important milestones, but we've kind of moved beyond them. I own a copy of Carcassonne because my brother, who recently got into gaming, hit that point in his game career and he's like i just bought this new game carcassonne and i'm like uh, great you go <laughs> well so one thing that is worth mentioning is uh meeples originated with carcassonne so you really? know you're right oh yeah. yeah i went and verified a couple uh-huh. of places just to make sure i wasn't uh-huh. saying that wrong yeah that yeah. that specific shape for pieces <laughs> Originated with Carcassonne. That was the first game that had them. I so. did not really? actually know that. Yeah. yeah. I think I did know that at some point, but it's kind of weird to think about a game existing before then and yeah, not yeah. having that shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's super <laughs> yeah. weird, right? Like, that's just like the classic person shape now. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. thought that was interesting. No, that's a, that's a very good point. One of the ones in that same period was another 2000 release, is another one that sort of has some of the sort of tetronomoe tetrominoe functionality but also has a bunch of euro stuff on top of it and this was should we define that word for anybody that doesn't know it's basically tetris shapes right it, it's it's all the possible arrangements of four squares right. that touch each other although in a lot of these games they may be five they may be three they're different size you know different arrangements of squares functionally this is one of the first games i think this is one of the first games i played and then immediately bought myself a copy of when i first moved to atlanta and started playing board games seriously this is princes of florence 2000 from alia and rio grande designed by wolfgang Kramer, richard ulrich and jens christopher ulrich this was one of the pieces of what is still inexplicably known as the alia big box series although given the size of board game boxes today they're really sort of the <laughs> Small box series now. This is pre-Kickstarter. <laughs> yes, this is, this is pre-Gloomhaven. And this is a game in which you are a prince of Florence, as the name implies. You are trying to attract artists to your palazzo during the Renaissance and have them produce really exciting and beautiful artistic works. In fine Euro tradition, this is abstracted to scoring points for them. And basically, there is an auction phase in the game where you are going and saying, I want to hire a builder, which will make building cheaper, or I want to buy a building of various sizes, or I want to buy a park or a forest or a lake and have them put in. And then you get your artists, and artists are inspired by different things. So it's basically, I do my best work when I can sit in a library and look at a lake. So if you have a library and a lake in your palazzo, then you will get more points out of it. And there are other, you know, bonus points you get for different things. Is there but a bar in this game? <laughs> I don't think my best inspiration when I'm drinking. Okay, okay Mr. Hemingway. With a, in a bar and can see a lake. <laughs> and of course, the various buildings and the landscape elements are shaped like little arrangements of squares, and you have to try and fit them into your palazzo. So you're trying to get multiple people that use the same building or the same landscape feature. That's great. You can fit things in. 
By today's standards, it's a relatively simple and straightforward Euro game. I just always really liked it because you get that bit of spatial arrangement in laying out your villa, but you've also got various auction elements going on. If you hire enough builders, you can put your buildings adjacent to each other, which you couldn't do before, so you've got a bunch of flexibilities going on in there. I just like it. It's a classic. Like we were talking about with Carcassonne, I think it's one that has been outgrown by a number of other games recently. But unlike Carcassonne, I would probably go back and play this one again at least once every couple of years just because I like it. I mean, it's Cromer, Kiesling, Ulrich. Yeah, it's, it's a those very are all, solid yeah, totally, yeah. Brian, why have we never played this game? The entire time you were talking about it during prep, I was picturing Castles of Burgundy, which is in the same series. I feel like we probably did in the early days, because this is one that I was really hot on for a while. I don't I don't think I've ever played Princess of Florence. Well, we should fix that. I feel, like, I feel like I've played it once, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you know, I'm not saying components. it's going to change your life, but I think it's a good game. <laughs> huh. Now, Brian's got the manual here, and it's just, it's filling me with nostalgia, that that specific color of beige mm-hmm. of all the Rio Grande game instruction manuals. Like, here are all your rules, and then the sidebar has all the clarifications yep. and yep. extra bits. It's really well put together. I uh, And the rules are simple enough that mm-hmm. you can just kind of... Full index of the cards that tell you what they do. It's it's so nice. That's just that's just good game craftsmanship that, that right there. That series of games is all pretty solid as oh, well yeah. yeah there were so many good games in that series except Puerto Rico, for macau castle of burgundy except for what except for the one the one you, you know, know who you one. are you know what you did the, the game that will not be spoken <laughs> god uh, what is it rum and oh god macau is in this series yes again, it is yeah it? we do love us some macau. Uh, notre dame is totally in there. totally uh, the, the one thing i remember about these boxes is like It's not that they were big boxes. They were slightly taller than every other box. Mm -hmm. Traders of Genoa. Adele Verfliestet was released in this that we talked about last episode. Oh, totally. Chinatown originated in this series. Yeah. The series of games of stern-looking European men on the cover Mm -hmm. and nothing else. (laughs) Pretty much. Pretty much. Has somebody done a collage of those? (laughs) Well, he's looking at a whole group of I mean, that's the size. I mean, that's an impressive list of games, but yeah, there is a certain uh, uniformity in the design. Yeah. Stefan Brook picked those well. Yeah, like, I'd say those are are more winners than not. Like I said, the only dud is Rum and Pirates, which is not. Which I had, I don't think I had ever even heard of. So that's the one that kind of gets stuffed in the back of the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Under a thick layer of dust. I might, I might need to go pick those up. I, I want to own a lot of those. A lot. <laughs> oh, Raw. Yeah, totally. Right? Yeah. Didn't that Raw and a couple of those are like Tigers and Euphrates get re-released by Fantasy Flight years ago? Tigris and Euphrates did. Rom probably, Rom has yeah. been a couple editions, yeah. I know, or a couple versions. Yeah. All right, well, let's get off of any sort of story or any thematic elements whatsoever. No stern European men. <laughs> no stern European men in this one. We're kind of doing a combination here of a game called Rumus and an extension of the Blockus game that we were talking about earlier. Rumus was the original. It was re-released as Blockus 3D. Oh, it's the same game then. It is okay. literally yeah. exactly oh, wow. the same game. Okay, so released in 2003, designed by Stefan how do you say? Kogel? Kurgle. Kurgle? Kurgle? Oh, I can't. It's got an umlaut, man. Don't nope. worry about it. Nope. Sure. Nope. Uh-huh. You nailed it. Yep, nailed mm-hmm. it. And released by Educational Insights. So like most of the games that we've talked about today, they're going to have Tetramino pieces. So you've got your... I think this one's limited to the four squares, I believe. Um, based on what we were playing. I think I they were smaller so. ones. Well, a ma- like, maximum of four squares. Yes, I'm yes, sorry. That's yeah, you're yeah. So maximum of four squares. But these are three-dimensional 
These are similar to Tetris pieces yeah, <laughs> in design, yeah. but they vary in terms of number of blocks that are in those pieces. And in this game, instead of trying to create a line in two dimensions, you're actually trying to build up in three dimensions, and the only way you score points are what is visible from viewing directly on top. If you've ever played Imhotep, the temple in Imhotep is the same way. You're putting down blocks, and the only things that are visible at the top are the things that you get to score points for. So it's a competitive game. You've got four players max, and you're basically just trying to make sure that you have as many of your color being visible from the top as you can. So there's a lot of blocking people out, building up on top of stuff, laying out pieces so you have multiple sides that are visible. Is it four or five? It's five tall or four tall? It four. depends on oh. the board you're on. The board. Oh, there's like a square right. one. There's an L-shaped one. There there's is like the a rectangular teeny, tiny one. square, but could be infinitely high. <laughs> yeah. You may play one of your long straight pieces pieces out flat because if other pieces don't go that way then those will all be visible in front but you're almost certainly going to get built on top of you can block people off there's a lot of bits to it and it's worth noting i forgot this in the rules description like blockus you have to be touching one of your well and not like blockus but there's a limitation where you can place and that limitation is you have to be touching one of the faces of your color anywhere on the board so it could be, you know, three rows up and you're touching it there. It could be from the bottom. You can build on top of your own pieces, but you have to be able to touch the faces of one of your pieces to be able to place a legal mm-hmm. piece. That is a surprisingly easy rule to forget. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it gives some really interesting, like, area control elements to the game, right? You can, like, lock people out of areas by, if there is a maximum height, making sure it's a maximum height and then cutting them off, yep. right? When we did our playthrough of it, one side of the structure we were building was like three rows of brian's color and then just jason on the top <laughs> yes jason was every single just one covering all of my shit and making me sad mm-hmm. but yeah like we said there are two versions rumus was the original and then got re-released as block as 3d i really like the rumus version because a it comes with a little lazy susan you know that yeah, you put that the board really instead cool. in. yeah. and also the pieces are this really pretty sort of almost pearlescent yeah, plastic yeah, yeah. so it's a very striking game to play mm-hmm yeah, very satisfying from a tactical perspective, mm-hmm. right? Like tactile, yes. tactical. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess tactical too. <laughs> also, <But laughs> tactile perspective is what I was going for. Because mm-hmm. yeah, they're, they're big chunky pieces. I'm terrible at any sort of visual <laughs> r- arrangement games. Like I can't follow directions and get anywhere driving around. So like playing games where the whole thing is okay. This is in three dimensions. No, just right out. <laughs> just nope, nope, nope. But even I can appreciate how clever this game is and how interesting it is. And it plays super fast. Like you can't get super upset about it. It's like. You're just putting down fun little bits of plastic and Mm -hmm. getting screwed over by other players. Jason, you know how most people spent the COVID lock-in doing something productive with their lives? Did they? I didn't. Learning how to bake or knit or something like that. I could create a montage of my training in Tetris. <laughs> and I still <laughs> lost every single game last week. So Yeah, I, th- I think it proves that that training is not as valuable as we no, thought it was. No, nope, not at all. Tetris A is real time. Yeah. And also you can rotate pieces, which you often yeah. can't in these. <laughs> and you can leave gaps that you can overhang in Tetris. That actually is going to be another rule. Anytime we talk about these 3D spatial arrangement games, I think almost every single one of them has a rule of like, you can't just have a piece floating out yeah, in space. Yeah, it has space. to be supported, yeah. I think that's pretty uniformly yeah, true. I can't think of any of that we played that didn't, didn't have that restriction. Yeah. And then 
In a similar vein, another Tetronimo game is Ubongo, which was released in 2003, designed by Gregors Reichtman. I'm very sorry. Nailed it. Released by Cosmos. And this is basically a game where you have your traditional set of pieces. I think there's probably a total of 10 pieces in the set of different designs. And basically, on a certain turn, you're going to reveal a car that has a certain sort of squarish or geometrical design and a set of five or four of those pieces. And you basically have to find a way to exactly fill that space with that particular set of pieces. And the first one to do it gets the most points. So it's really just a matter of efficiently filling a space with the pieces you have. And there's usually only one way to do it. So this is very much a pure figure out the spatial arrangement or you suck, which some people will take or leave. There's also an Ubongo 3D, which is literally the same thing, only in three dimensions. You still have the same physical layout at the bottom that you have to match. This one I don't think has, at least for me, stood the test of time as much as like Rumis or Blockus have. It's still a good game, but it really is kind of multiplayer solitaire puzzle solving. Yeah, I was going to say, it feels more like a puzzle than a game, right? Yeah. Yeah, it functionally is. So it depends on what you're into. The time element is what makes it a game, but mm-hmm. you're not wrong. Yeah. That's interesting because we're going to see almost that exact same iteration of play in another game that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And I'm fascinated to, to really get into like what makes that game funner than this one, which we'll, we'll come back yeah, to that. Yeah, hold that thought. Hold that thought. Frank. You've got something weird for us, I imagine. Yeah, totally. And so, you know how a lot of people talk about Euro games? Mm-hmm. Kind of a light Euro, medium Euro, heavy Euro. Right. And then occasionally they talk about splatter games. <laughs> it's like you're looking at them with binoculars at a distance going, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and so we have Antiquity, which there's another good picture of someone playing Antiquity, just showing a picture on this hideous tablecloth. <laughs> and the capture reads... Oh my God, the chit factory exploded. I hope everyone got out okay. (laughs) It has so many pieces. And really, there's two spatial games going on. In a lot of ways, Antiquity feels like Puerto Rico on massive steroids. So it's much harder. You have one or more cities in which you place your pin, tet, or quad domino buildings. These buildings are manned by people in houses, which give you your workers that you then have to man buildings in order to use those powers on a turn. And of course, you're collecting resources in the giant hex grid that all of these cities are on top of and basically represent by a little seven hex piece representing the city that you then have your own breakout grid that you're placing your tetromino buildings on. So basically you're building buildings, getting the resource and everything. But then you've got farmers and waste out in the main world. And depending on what you've done for building inns and harbors affects how far your influence reaches. And that's where you can build more farmers and ports and inns, as well as whenever you do something, it often generates waste which you then have to place somewhere in your influence. And so the game also includes a lot of expanding and exporting your trash close to somebody else. You know a game has really got it when you have to do waste (laughs) management. And if you fail and don't expand fast enough, you'll basically just drown in garbage and you can't do anything anymore and uh, you stop producing resources and 
die. Literally, there is a death spiral. To yeah. So it's vastly unforgiving. But you've got kind of those two levels of spatial awareness and arrangement going on. It really looks like a war game. Oh, yeah. You know, from a distance, you know, with all the the big hex map and all the counters on top of it. You don't actually move pieces ever. Huh. You're generally placing, although when you place a farmer, you place crop resources around them. And then once per turn per farmer, you collect those resources. Generally what happens when you place a farmer, you place a pollution around that farmer with a resource crop, whatever, under it. So when you take that particular resource, yeah, you're leaving a pollution on it. And There's no such thing as crop rotation for these people. <laughs> yeah, actually, there are. Uh, you can get buildings that help with removing oh, some good. pollution. <laughs> good. Hopefully, you've done that, uh, or you've gotten a lot of ends, and you're doing that stuff way away from you where you can just pollute it. So it's the story of evolution of human society, yeah. huh? But you can actually end up with three cities. So you have three of those grids where you can build buildings. Oh, my Lord. How long does this take to play? It's about two, three hours. It's a pretty concise game. Because, again, you're mostly adding and building. It is very hard because you're having to play so many pieces and think about space so much. I'm curious. Like, there was a piece that Brian showed me earlier when we were talking about what we were going to include this or not. It was... It was a- <laughs> A little Tetramino piece that said forced labor on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Like you do. Like you do. The production's kind of interesting. It includes like a model archival box they used to archive in museums. I mean, the cover looks like the old composition books you used in in LA. Wow. And the the town and a lot of the pieces look like they're done in cardboard with, you know, different fonts, letters representing some of the pieces. And it's a gorgeous, weirdly... What even is that? I don't <laughs> I don't understand. It, it, yeah, You heard him. The chip factory exploded. <laughs> uh, and it all looks like, you know, something you pull out of a museum or someone mm-hmm. that hand wrote on cardboard. It's kind of striking its own very brown way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's striking, not colorful. Yes, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. it's not. It's also almost completely not random. There are some random things you place out on the board at the start, and then nothing else random happens in the game. It's so brutal. it's a Euro game. Oh, it's so a Euro game. Okay. But it's also so hard. They even have it in two layers. The first easier layer, where you're reasonably likely not to completely drown in your own shit. <laughs> and then the actual game, which I... Where you will drown in your own shit. I don't think anyone has ever survived. It's just, <laughs> oh my God. It's right, that's really hard. why it takes two to three guess, hours because yeah. there's a death spiral. <laughs> Did you actually say who made and published it? This is Splatterspellen, designed in 2004 by Jerome Doman and Joris Joris Rusinga. Nailed it. Yeah, they're Dutch. I'm not going there. It sounds fascinating. Not enough for me to actually want to play it, but I'd kind of like to actually see it really. I actually really like playing the game. You like playing a lot of games, Frank. That know, the rest of us don't understand, hey, Frank. I'm ready to drown in my own shit with that. <laughs> <laughs> so on the um, games you could actually play, but no one's ever heard about, would be Tasso. It's 2004 by Philippe Pro, published originally by Lude Arden, but Cosmos picked it up. And they did some weird jungle versions. You get like zebra pieces and such. And it's a simple game. You've got a big wooden board, I think cardboard and some of the later ones, and then a bunch of big old wooden rods, which are square, rectangular, kind of like matchsticks, really. Yeah, I was going to say, are all the the pieces the same length? Yeah, all the pieces are the same length. 
And the game, uh, here's the entire rules. Basically, you can place a piece on the board or you can place it on exactly two other pieces and each piece can only support one other piece. If you place a piece on top of two other pieces, you get to go again. Everyone's given the same number of matchsticks, we'll call them. At the start of the game, first person to get rid of their matchsticks wins. That's it. There are no spaces on this board. You simply place where you want to. It almost feels like it's sort of bordering over into dexterity game territory, although it's not like you're really going to no, knock things really. over or yeah. fall down. There are a couple of little dexterity-ish rules, but they never come up. The only tricky part is when you're trying to place a piece that's supported on multiple levels. Yeah. You know, can that actually work? Mm -hmm. So that gets a little fiddly. But no, it's more about, okay, this is close enough. You can actually do a lot of blocking pieces in 3D space. But because there's no, and you know, making sure that they can get to one or cut someone off. Right. Because you take the piece that they would be using. And so it's surprisingly tricky for blocking. But because there's no grid or anything, it almost includes a physical kind of aspect to it, to the placement. Hmm. I will say. A much more clever game than it seems. It does look like somebody took two Jenga sets and was like, what if we battled each other? with (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. And when you look at people playing the game, it's like, you know, just a big piece piled with a bunch of sticks. And you're going, what? Huh? So each piece can only support one other Piece. piece on top and, of it and yeah. a piece can only be on top of exactly two and exactly two yeah that's it so once i place a piece on top of two sticks those two sticks cannot can no have longer any other piece any on other them piece. right yeah. but the one that is on top can also have something placed on it correct so you, you can have stack. to balance them on things that are no. of the same level or can things be slanted things can be slanted uh, that complicates things yes yeah. As a side, you can look at Tokyo Highway, which has some of that same kind of feel. And uh, yeah, it's even more bonkers. Yeah, it reminded us a bit of, what was that? What was the game with the construction workers? Uh, um, Minute Work. Minute Work. Men at work. Yeah. It, it is sort of like a, or Men at Work is sort of like a more complicated version of this. Yeah, story. it feels like that designer took this game and was like, what if there was more? Yeah. Because like you have That's to balance. It. Put more things on. You have to balance men on it. That's then, definitely um, more dexterity-ish. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Same, Tokyo Highway is a little more dexterity, not a lot. They did have on Board Game Geek a reprint under another name called Lakota. L-A-K-O-T-A. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. So let's talk about Tetris pieces, because we certainly haven't covered that enough today. Ooh, are you going to tell us about Tetris, the board game? Essentially, yes. There's a game called Fits, and then we'll be talking about kind of a follow-up called Bits. Fitz was created in 2009 by a, I don't know, I've never heard of this guy before, Reiner Knizia? He's, he's done a couple things. Never, never heard of him. Oh, okay. By, is it Ravensburger or Ravensburger? No one's ever told me. I think preferably Ravensburger. 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 They use, first use hard. Ravensburger. <laughs> Ravensburger. Ravensburger. Yeah. And as Mike alluded, Fitz is essentially exactly what he was talking about. It was essentially Tetris the board game. It's played in four phases. Everyone has these delightfully slanted board, I don't know what you call them. I guess, containers that will hold your Tetris pieces for you into lanes. You'll start with a starter piece that's drawn from a deck of cards. You'll place that down. Then you'll be drawing from a shared deck that'll say you have to place this type of piece. Then you'll have to place this type of piece. In the first phase, you're trying to cover all of the dots. So this entire board is covered in dots for every single square you could possibly have as a Tetris piece. So if you completely filled the thing, You've done the best you possibly can. You lose no points. No one ever does that. Line piece. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm putting a link to that video in the uh-huh. show notes again. Totally. So that's the first phase. Simple enough. You know, you're trying to minimize the damage. If you have any gaps where you didn't fully fill it in, you lose a point. Simple enough. 
phase two has spots that have bonus points. So if these spots are open, you get bonus points on top of whatever you're losing from any any other. But you still got to cover all the dots. Yeah, have to cover all the dots. Phase three now has bonus spots and negative spots. So now you have more things to kind of cover selectively and uncover selectively. And then phase four, they're like, screw it. Let's get abstract and have symbols. So now you have pairs of symbols that you have to have covered or uncovered. If both of them are uncovered, you get bonus points. If one of them's uncovered, you lose points. Mm -hmm. I am awful at this game. Uh I was at negative 13 points at the end of the game. (laughs) But it's great. Since everyone's familiar with Tetris, it's very easy to teach. Mm -hmm. And the boards are very clearly laid out. It's like, okay, I need to cover this. I need to uncover this. It's very simple. It plays very quickly. I I was pretty taken with this game, like even doing as miserably badly as I did on it, because it's such an easy concept to explain, an easy concept to execute, and it's very fast. Like, it's a great quasi-filler. It's it's a great abstract game for people who aren't hardcore gamers necessarily. I still like it. I'm a relatively hardcore gamer, I guess, and it's a lot of fun. We have learned that Mike's Tetris training did not really prepare him for this, because you you can slide a piece down and then move it over and rotate it. That doesn't work in this game. Why did none of my T pieces spin into place? I don't understand. Well, it's also fun watching Mike fight the natural urge to try and cover everything. Right. My (laughs) goal here is to create lines, right? Yeah. And, you know, leave a gap over here for when the line piece comes down. Don't do that. Oh, and never call which card you want to come next. (laughs) Do not... Do not be desirous of things. I think in playing all of these spatial arrangement games in one sitting, the one thing we could really take away is that these games will teach you not to want things. (laughs) Yes, it's a very zen kind of approach. You know, I'm fascinated to see if there is any effort for them to get a Tetris tie-in for this, because it feels like they should have. But why pay for the license when you can just use the same Because piece? then everybody gets money? Like, that's the thing about well, I mean, IPs, well, right? It's well, like, let's, let, I mean, let's be clear, though. The Tetris license is in such a weirdly complicated oh, place it's, that, like, even starting to have that conversation, you'd need to talk to a hundred different if, people. If you ever want just a fascinating dive into, like rights law like who owns what law like tetris is a fascinating journey they can never license it because there's not like a single entity they can go to to license tetris fair enough there is tetris a two-player abstract strategy game there is also a milton bradley tetris which is a two to four player abstract strategy game and then there is tetris tower 3d which Um, is just jenga which is Rumus, sort of? Okay. Yeah, so there have been a lot of Tetris board games, but I think this is more like it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then two years later, in 2011, Bits came out. Bits is a bit... (laughs) It's a bit different. You, instead of having Tetris pieces, you have two square pieces. They'll have... Dominoes. Yeah, yeah, functionally. Yeah, functionally dominoes. They're very tiny, but like they'll have colors on them. And instead of trying to uh, cover up spaces on your board, you're actually trying to build Tetris shapes out of those colors. And so the scoring cards will say you get X amount of points for having made a four square or a blue T piece or yeah, no. yeah, exactly. Or like an L shape or whatever. And then there's also ones you lose points. I saw one where you lose points for every orphaned little color square mm-hmm. that's by itself. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's an interesting kind of inversion of the gameplay. I, I don't think I like it as much as I like Fitz. I think Fitz is just a more satisfying game to play. Agreed. But uh, it's an interesting, you know, kind of twist on it. If you're, you know, some people maybe are better at this sort of thing, building out shapes instead of trying to manhandle shapes into spaces they want them to go. You know what we haven't talked about enough, Brian? Tetronimos. (laughs) (laughs) 
Let's talk about Tetron. I think that's great. Can can they be like three dimensional ones in primary colors? Yes, I, I think that's a great idea. Let's talk about Laboka, released in 2013, designed by Inca and Marcus Brand, and released by Cosmos Games. On this list, I think Laboka is, except for maybe a game in the future, it's definitely my favorite game that is abstract on this list. So the way Laboka works is you get a card. Uh, it has two sides, right? One will face you, one will face the person you're cooperating with. So every round you cooperate with another player on the table. And all you're trying to do is you're trying to look at this card that shows to you a bunch of colored faces. And you need to take these three-dimensional tetronomos and arrange them so that you see exactly what your card sees. And your cooperative partner is trying to do the same thing with their card, and their card will be totally different. Because obviously you're both looking at it a different side of this three-dimensional object you're both creating. And there's a lot of time of like, well, hey, I don't see that red. Get that red out of here. Go hide that red. I don't I don't like that red. Get it out of here. No, no, no. Don't move the green one. I need that there. I need that green one right there. Don't move it. You may not move it. <laughs> <laughs> and so it requires a lot of communication. It requires a lot of abstract thinking. It requires a lot of visual interpretation of the information you're getting and, and determining how best to place all those pieces so you see the information you need to see and don't see the information you don't need to see. And it's great. Yeah, it, it is a really good game for groups. It plays super fast. It plays up to eight. Your scoring is basically each round you score based on how quickly you and your opponent successfully complete the task. You get nothing if you didn't successfully complete it. There is a winner at the end based on who has individually gotten the most points, but I don't think I've ever played a game of Loboco where that really matters. It's the process that's the entertaining. Yeah, yeah, this falls into the party game echelons of like the playing is what is the reward. Exactly. Not- the I win, you all lose, suck it. It's reminiscent of the, Frank, what was the name of the, the game where you had the giant black block that had a, a head in Headquarter. And, headquarter. Yeah, where you had different pieces and either player saw different sides of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a competitive game where you can just happen to screw with the other player's side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, this one's a lot of fun. And you, you have to use all the pieces, so it's like, well, there's this brown one. Where does it Stick it in the middle. I don't want to see it either. Bury it. Uh, <laughs> There's like two levels of difficulty. There's like an extra red piece that you put on the advanced cards. You can play it with younger players or more hardcore players or whatever. It's just really well put together. It's very pretty. The box is sort of the play surface. Just thumbs up all the way. I will say, though, my one gripe about this game is the box can sometimes swallow pieces. That's true. (laughs) That's true. There are some things that can disappear in there and never come out. It's not as bad as Chateau Roquefort is is the ultimate box that eats pieces. But uh, yeah, it does happen a little bit in here, but still well worth getting. That one is a good implementation of the box as a game component, though. Mm -hmm. They're they're like Chateau Roquefort and uh, what was the other one? Uh, Cleopatra, Cleopatra, the architects. it doesn't happen very often, but every time a game utilizes the box like that, I'm like, oh, I like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. One thing I think that makes Loboco really work is that you have a bunch of opponents, but every time you interact with an opponent, it's purely cooperative. Right. Right. So it's like, hey, I'm, a, I'm against you, but also at this specific moment, you and I are best friends because we've got to go do this thing together. Joe, it's a win better game. It is a win better game, and that's okay because, like, like Mike said, it's really the journey, not the destination. In a lot of in this yes. case, everything is made up, and the points don't matter. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, the thing that's fascinating about it is like it, it is that I think the reason that it honestly gets across the game, it's a journey, not a destination, is because it's so much fun to both participate and also 
like nerve-wracking to participate but then watching other people play the game is highly highly entertaining because mm-hmm. you're like they're just like sitting there horribly stressed and you're like i i appreciate what they're going through i've gone right. through it too and also this is hilarious yes yeah it just really hits the sweet spot uh, just, i think it'll yeah it's really very really well designed so next game when we were cutting games i simply mentioned the king of frontier and said if you pull that i'll cut you <laughs> um, so we left it on the list everybody needs to know that we are being held at knife point <laughs> right now send help yeah if you played games with me frequently you've probably been made to play this in fact when we mentioned you know spatial arrangement sandy looked and went oh like king of frontier <laughs> And who made this game? This game was designed by Shen Taguchi, published by Studio GG. Forget it's Japanese, you can never find it, it's out of print. But Skylands, which is a 2017-2018 by Queen, was released with zero fanfare, also designed by Shen. It's almost identically the same game, some changes that are generally for the good. But this applies to both games. Minor changes, and you should definitely take a look at Skylands. It's probably coughed up on the discount tables by now. It's very pretty. I mean, it's a Queen's game, which means it's... (laughs) They just released it with no fanfare. It's totally adequate. Oh god, it looks like Carcassonne. Yeah, in particular, this game is an unshamedly obvious cross between Carcassonne and Puerto Rico. Making it a... Carcarico. (laughs) Which is often how we refer to the game when Mm -hmm. we're getting people to play it. I think the reason this got passed is just so I could say, (laughs) Carcarico. It was a factor. It's like a Metroidvania, only different. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Very similar. And you can kind of see it in design. I mean, you've got your own 5x4 grid that you're laying out carcassonne pieces literally there are cities forests and quarries and everything on a big field of bright green on your turn though you basically choose a role that you want to take and everyone gets that action and you get the slightly better version you've heard this before Mm -hmm. um like development says you get to place two tiles everyone else gets to place one you just draw a tile plop it on your map and or not because some of those tiles just don't want to go when you want them to go second choice is production if you've got a completed area of wood stone or wheat you can basically fill it with cubes matching that color but you have to have a completed area you get two completed areas everyone else gets one construction in turn order there are 16 tiles that are not just face down in a pile and these are bought with wood and stone Specifically, like uh, the rules example shows two wood, two stone, but they vary in cost. You know what the tile looks like. You know what you're getting. You know what the shape is. Basically, if you decide to construct, you buy a tile. You get a one cube discount and everyone else buys flat out. And uh, last would be shipping, which is so Puerto Rico. (laughs) Basically, at this point, your cities can consume wheat, which is not used for construction. The only thing wheat's good for is shipping to cities. Basically, you pick a city and it can consume that many wheat cubes, assuming you have them on your board, and you'll get a point per. And that's actually the game. It's really about 45 minutes, maybe 30. So it's a very short, concise game. But you're kind of building up a lot like Puerto Rico, but then you're doing it with Carcassonne tiles. So the particular placement and closing off areas is really key, especially the beginning. So quite a bit of luck in terms of what tiles you get, but also prioritizing, can you get to resource? Can you do actions that the other people are just screwed on, like when to produce? Well, I think it also fixes the problem with Carcassonne, which is the scoring mechanism at the end, because you're not really evaluating the 
board state. So there is a little bit. You, there are bonus points in the uh, constructed buildings. Mm. A lot of those give VPs based on, but you don't have meeples you're placing. There are VPs that you're buying for more like Puerto Rico victory point buildings, right. though. And uh, one, you get a minus point, minus two points for every empty space on your board. Mm. So it is factored in, but it's not just massive. And yeah, it's a great game. In fact, Shun has done a couple other games that I'm partial to. Okay. Sounds good. All right, well, let's leave the King of Frontier and move off to uh, King Ludwig, specifically Castles of Mad King Ludwig, uh, released in 2014 by Ted Asbach. Allspach. Allspach. By, is it Bezier Games? Bezier. Bezier. Like the Bezier curve. It's French. Yeah, it is very French. If you know Ted, he uh, actually makes, has made a lot of his money publishing Photoshop books. And Bezier curves are a big thing in Photoshop. And it's a a reference i never caught that's interesting in this game you're you're basically architects designing a king for this uh, designing a king king. you you put his arm on and his leg and his no you design castles for this particular king each person's building their own castle right Mm -hmm. and where it comes into play for what we're doing is each castle room has a certain number of openings like uh doors take it and you're connecting them but each of the rooms that you buy are going to be different shapes. Some are like oval, some of them are square, some of them are circles, and you have to put opening to opening. And so as you build out this castle that is a terrible, terrible floor plan that no one would ever make. He's mad, you see. I kind of I, I kind of keyed off of that. You're trying to build some next to each other. You're trying to build some not next to each other. It becomes more and more of a spatial puzzle for you as you get more and more spread out and things start to make it so that this shape won't fit here anymore. So which is the room I want to build next? It's fine, Jason. Just fill it with swans. Swan. That's an expansion. <laughs> ah, damn. <laughs> you have to pay extra for the swans, Mike. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it's and the auction mechanism in this oh, game true, yeah. is really fascinating. So basically, everybody takes a turn being what they call, I think, the master builder. Yes. And it basically, you set the prices for the different things that are available. So you have to get the thing you want. You put it at a price that is affordable if you get to have it, but not so cheap that someone else will take it from you. And when you're the master builder, also you get all the money that turn? That's true. From other that's players? True. You're yeah, like, that, oh! That's your source of income is by selling them rooms. Like, <laughs> hmm, Brian will pay 10 for this for sure. Excellent. <laughs> God damn it, Joe. <laughs> take your money. Super wacky and, and like in a good way. Right? Yeah. Like it's like, it really feels like you're you're building this crazy structure that doesn't make any sense. Yes, now I want a topiary garden next to the music room. Yeah. Why the- is the dungeon next to the bastard bedroom? Shut up. <laughs> Don't lot. kink shame. That's a lot of bonus points. <laughs> but yeah, this is uh, this was a big hit and has, has been a classic for a while. Mm-hmm. We actually haven't played that one in a while. No. We should go back and visit. I feel like they did a digital implementation of that one as well. That seems like it would be weird to do digitally because the placement is so yeah. well, imprecise. Just, you have to connect door to door, though. Like yeah. That is a fixed point. Yeah, I guess. I feel like there is a huh, well, digital implementation. I, there might be wrong about that one. In some ways, I feel like games like this feel better in person than they are. The, yeah. Like the tactileness of like placing the rooms is, mm-hmm. just doesn't come across as nicely in, in digital space. And seeing other people's insane castles, you're like, what are you yeah, doing exactly. over there? And this game also came out in a point of time where Ted Allspock was doing a lot of like spatial was? arrangement stuff. Yeah, totally. I mean, because this was right around the same time as 
suburbia. I think suburbia was which begat subdivision and between two cities and yeah. Right then, Mike, you just picked something up recently that you brought out here, and we were very confused by it. Yeah, so I played this game at, I think it might have been our local secret board game con. Uh, so this is a game And it called, took you this long to get a copy? That was like two years ago. Well, last year didn't count, so. Dimensions is a game that came out in 2014 from Cosmos Games and was made by Lauj Luciu. I'm so sorry. <laughs> what if all those pieces that we're spatially arranging were instead perfect spheres? No, you're insane. Stop. Madness. <laughs> this game done. is really clever. So there are five different colors of spheres. At the beginning of the round, you flip up six cards that have a set of rules with them. For example, you must have exactly one black sphere. Or white spheres may not be above any other color. Or you must have more green than orange. Everybody looks at these six rules. Swears a lot. Swears a lot. (laughs) And then you spend the next, I think, minute desperately trying to put spheres into an arrangement of 7-3-1 to make a stack of spheres. And then you evaluate your score. You get plus one for every sphere that you've managed to place, whether it was uh, following those rules or not. And then you lose two points for every rule that you've broken. And you play a number of rounds. I think officially you play three, but honestly, play until you're done playing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's this game. Yeah, it's certainly interesting because, you know, looking at pictures of it with them all being spheres, it doesn't look like it should work. But there are actually very nicely designed little cardboard play spaces that have tracks for you to store the marbles in and little depressions that keep everything in place. It's physically very well put together. I worry a little bit, and we only played like a round or two of this doing a proof of concept. I worry that there are going to be rule sets where there's kind of like a single optimal solution and either you get that or you don't. Yeah. And I think Joe pointed this out. This is one of those games that really doesn't work without a timer because you you need that kind of time pressure to create imperfect play. It's not an aggressive timer, right? Honestly, if it's not aggressive, right? Like... hmm. Yeah, and I think there is also probably a table agreement of like, hey, we're not going to flip these six cards over and then spend five minutes thinking about it before Mm -hmm. we start. Flip them and go. (laughs) Right. But it plays incredibly fast. It's not that big of a game. I think this is a good niche. If you're looking for a spatial arrangement game that's a little brain burnery and puzzly, this one might fill that gap. Certainly looks cool on the table, too. Yeah, it's well designed. Much like with, uh, I think it was Rumus you were saying, had the pearlescent Mm -hmm. cubes. The spheres in this one are made out of like a very hard plastic that has this nice tactile weight to it. They're just sort of grippy enough. Right. And they're heavy enough that they don't like, it's not easy to... They're not like ping pong balls. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's They're not going to bounce. They will roll away on you, but they're not going to like bounce halfway across the convention floor space or anything. Yeah, all the physical components are very well thought out. Mm -hmm. So, enough of the sphere nonsense. None of this abstractness. Take us back to the 2D. Let's build a city. Let's build two. Ooh, go on. What do you mean, let's? Don't we build cities by ourselves? No. Oh. It takes a village to build a a city. Let's talk about between two cities. We're going to be between two separate cities. Uh, so I don't actually get to live in my city. No, absolutely not. <laughs> you, you commute back. And forth. Ah. Yes, it's awful. It's awful. You know, no one likes it. Released in 2015, designed by Matthew O'Malley and Ben Rossett, published by Stonemeyer Games. In between two cities, right, you, at the start of each round, you draw a hand of seven tiles. 
and then you select two tiles, one tile to go to the city on your left and one tile to go in the city on your right. And the, the cities are in essence like a five by five grid. Yeah. And the, you, you share a city with each of your neighbors. Yep. And very importantly, you are making those decisions independently of each other. It Correct. is pick two tiles and then pick the city that those tiles go to. Correct. Because that might not work it, out the way you change. want it to. <laughs> And then you you take the remainder of your tiles and pass them along. So it has a kind of a, a light drafting component. And the fascinating thing about the game, in my opinion, is the way scoring happens at the end of the game. There are a bunch of placement bonuses for tiles. Like, oh, hey, this is a tavern. So every tavern that's next to a house gets bonus points. Or like, hey, if you have a set of this specific kind of tile, yeah, you get bonus factory points. Yeah, shouldn't be near houses. Right. Yeah. It's like, hey, for the large, largest park, you know, for larger parks, you get a bigger bonus. And then at the end of the game, you score whichever city you're next to that has the lowest score. Yep. That is your final score for the game. So you want both of your cities to be good, yep. and you want them to be better than your person on the other side's city. Correct. Yeah, the scoring gets really interesting. You know that old saying, you're only as strong as your weakest teammate? That is this. Yes, very <laughs> much so. And so the placement is very much what brought this into mind, right? You have both square pieces and the second round you do what they call duplex tiles, which are like just rectangular, right? Two square pieces. Um and by the end of the game, every space will be filled and you'll get to sit down and say, okay, how many shops do I have? How many factories? How many taverns? How many mm -hmm. offices? How many parks? How many houses? Oh, good Lord. Now I have some points. This one's a lot of fun. It plays up to seven players. And since everyone's kind of making those decisions simultaneously, there's not much in the way of downtime. It's a lot like Seven Wonders in some ways. There's a lot of DNA shared because mm -hmm. of the, the simultaneous picking and the drafting feels very similar. Yeah, but you've got the co-op element. But Joe, what if I don't like cities? What if I liked castles? What if you like castles? I mean, I guess then you could play the castles of the... Between two castles between of Mad, Castle King, of Mad Ludwig. King Ludwig. Yeah. Which is functionally the castle of Mad King Ludwig in this game jammed together in some sort of Frankenstein game. Yes, it's, it's the unnatural hybrid you never knew you needed. Right. <laughs> Like, I remember when they announced that game, and I thought it was a joke. Yeah, exactly. Like, whose idea was this? You got your peanut butter and my chocolate. Sadly, between two castles, Mike and Ludwig, uh, you don't have the fun, random piece shapes. It's squares. It's very mm -hmm. sad. Yeah. It makes it, I mean, honestly, it's like, aw. It has a similar DNA, but it without having a crazy giant circle room to screw over one of your yep. things, it's just like, eh. I haven't actually played Between Two Castles of Bethlehem. I, I think I would like to try it because I like both of its parents. Yeah. Maybe I'll like the kid. Who knows? <laughs> I just find it fascinating that they've taken those two, like, very different games mm -hmm. and managed to create something from them. I love it. Yeah. Honestly, you could do that with between two cities and a lot of things, any sort of multiplayer solitaire thing. You just do it with both your neighbors and, right. and make it happen. So there could be a whole between two series, mm -hmm. but there is one thing that both cities and castles are missing mm. and that's bears. That's true. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. I have not. There are never enough bears. Have you not played the Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig, the Bears expansion, where he wants his castles filled with bears? I have not, but luckily there is an alternative solution, and that is Baron Park. 2017 release from Phil Walker Harding, released by Mayfair. And this is a game in which you are functionally building zoos, except they are zoos devoted exclusively to bears, because fuck all those other animals. <laughs> yeah, they'd all be murdered by your... By bear. the bears. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
But yeah, basically the premise is you start with a little four by four tile on which you're starting to build your zoo. And and each turn you're sort of drafting various tiles, which are different bear habitats. Or you can also get elements for visitors, you know, parks and vending machines and restrooms and things like that. And when you place these tiles, there are various icons on the base plate. And depending on what you cover, you get additional tiles or additional actions or additional boards to expand your zoo. And the bear enclosures are not surprisingly tetromino shaped, although some of them are larger. So basically, you're trying to get a wide variety of different types of bears and lay things out in a coherent way. There's very limited supplies of different pieces. So if there is a particular shape that you've just made room for and the person to your right takes it, you'll be very angry at them. It's a pretty simple game. It's straightforward, but it's a lot of fun. When you finish one of your tiles, basically, if there's one space open, you get to put a little statue there. And the statues are worth a decreasing number of points as you go. So being the first one to fill out a tile gets you a lot more points. But that also means that sometimes you're rushing and not doing your optimal placements later. It's fun. It's clever. It's pretty. It's easy to learn and teach. Features koala bears with a subtitle. Yes, I know they're not bears. Uh, (laughs) Uh, It's something along those lines. But anyway, it's just a fun game. It's basically spatial arrangement kind of broken down to a minimum. You've got a variant to get various bonuses if you put certain combinations of things in certain places. It's just a nice little tiling game that, for me, has certainly fired something like Carcassonne. Yeah. When we played this one, I picked it up as well, because I was like, this is very cute. Fun game. I recommend it, if you like that sort of thing. One of the expansions has monorails in it. Monorail. Monorail. Which are a 3D component to the game. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Wow. Yes. How do I not have that already? (laughs) Beautiful. Every game needs monorails. Just, Just saying. Earlier when we were talking about Ubongo, we talked about how it was not quite as impressionable as some of those other games. So number nine, our next game, fills a very similar play style to Ubongo. This was made in 2017. Peter Wickman from Abakaspiel. Abakaspiele. Abakaspiel. Nailed it. Um (laughs) in this game. Everybody gets numbers created from geometric squares. They are forced into a grid pattern. Yeah. they, they Like they an old cheap digital clock. They may or may not represent the number they stand for. And every turn, somebody is going to flip over a card, and it's going to tell you what number you need to add to your display. Numbers must be connected in some way. You can place numbers on top of other numbers as long as you do not have any overhanging pieces. The fascinating thing about number nine is how it's scored. Really, all number nine is, is you flip a card, place that tile. Flip a card, place that tile. Very cut and dry. But you get zero points for everything that is touching the table. So everything that forms the foundation of your pile of tiles is worth nothing. However, you get a multiplier based on the level up from there. So on the first level up, all of those numbers will be multiplied by one. On the next level up, multiplied by two. On the next Mm -hmm. level, three. And so if you can build a very tall but narrow pile, you'll get a lot of points, but you're going to find that it gets progressively harder to go higher without also going out in the foundation. Yeah, because periodically it's like, I, I don't have any place to put it to. Well, and all of the numbers just have these 
awkward holes in the middle of them that mm-hmm. you, you just cannot fill. It's another one that is, it's a good light game. It's maybe half an hour to play. Not even like, yeah, yeah. I I could see it if you're playing with somebody who just must analyze every possible Mm -hmm. potential placement of a thing. It could take that long, but even still. Yeah, it does have the potato chip feeling. If you first introduce someone to it, they'll generally immediately want to play it again, Mm -hmm. which I find really true. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is, a, it is a solid game. It's small, it's inexpensive, it's well-produced. Yeah, I almost yeah. want to fire up the Glowforge and make a nice set. Ooh, uh, go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think this one's maybe also a little bit more puzzly than Ubongo is. Oh, yeah, because like, trying evil. to figure out how to connect those shapes is... Mm-hmm. The good news is you at least have, you know, you don't have a fixed layout you need to fill. Mm-hmm. You can always just stick one on the bottom, although you're not getting points for it. Whereas with Ubongo, you literally have to find the one way to fill this space. Right. Sorry, I'm looking at what maximum possible scores are in this game. It's like, I got nowhere close to these than any of my <laughs> yeah. well, I'm sure those are all <laughs> theoretical scores. Yeah, they are. They are. I'm just, I was just curious. It's like, weird. Oh the God. scoreboard goes up to 100. <laughs> why, are, why are there so many? Oh, God. This reminds me of Anna. What game was it we were playing with, Anna? Where, where, you know, we were all like in the, in the 60s and 70s. She's like, does the scoreboard wrap around when you get to 100? <laughs> I think it was Azul. It might have been. It was something like that. But it was just she was kicking our asses. Whoa. Anyway. Yeah, she's vicious. All right, Frank, take us home. I think I have to pick a game that's recent. No one's really heard of. And most importantly, just to keep that note going, the note for today is Quadominoes. Ooh. Should we define that for the people at home? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yeah, we've got a game with Quadominoes. This is Project L. 2020 Michael Mikes, Jan Sukel, Adam Spennell. We're sorry. Publisher, we have Board Cubator down here. Copy I got said it was distributed in the U.S. by Asmodee. So we can actually say something positive about Asmodee for once in our life. Mm-hmm. I refuse. I like this no, game. No, because cool. here's the problem. I'm fairly certain you can't buy this right now because you like you can pay them the money. I just can't get it to you. Bought it off Amazon. That's weird. Mm. <laughs> so there. Mm. So this game consists of a whole bunch of nice acrylic quad dominoes. You've also got some one pieces and two pieces with the one pieces looking just a little bit too much like chiclets. <laughs> <laughs> How much did you eat? This game is delicious. Oh, mostly equivalent. Mostly equivalent. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then a whole bunch of nice little two-layer cards so that your little acrylic pieces just kind of fit in so nicely. For the price, it's a really wonderfully produced game that's kind of gorgeous. There are three levels of cards. The ones that are just obscenely easy. The ones that are, wow, a little tricky. And the ones that are, man, it's going to take a lot of pieces to fill. And when so many of those big point pieces are taken, game ends. Basically, on your turn, you get three actions. You can take a card from the middle, put it in front of you. You can only have four in front of you. You can place a piece onto one of those cards. Or you can, once per turn, do the uber cool special move that is the core of the game and should try to do every turn. That is to place one piece in all of the cards in front of you. (laughs) And that's what makes the game tricky. Does it have to be the same piece in all the cards? No, it's one piece in as many cards as you want to place pieces. That seems really good. That's the important one to try to work for, meaning you want to have a lot of cards in front of you and you want to have a big enough pool of pieces Mm -hmm. to actually do this. 
which is nice because you start with one one by one piece and one one by two piece. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and you you can also take a one by one piece. That's yeah, awesome. That you can take one of those. Seems like you should action. not spend your turn doing. You can, oh, and you can upgrade a piece. You could take a one by one piece, turn it into a one by two piece, <laughs> or turn a one by two piece into a one by three piece. <gasps> and but yeah, that's an action. However, when you complete a card, you get all those pieces back into your little pool, which is nice. That gives you more bonuses. It also gives you points that you just set aside, keep it toward the end of the game. And most often, it'll also give you an extra piece, which you add to your pool. So it feels like an engine game in that you're kind of building up your big pool of pieces to mostly go for that big place one on everything action. So you're having to think, ooh, that's worth a lot of points and I could do it, but it doesn't give you any pieces. So I don't want to do that at the moment. And so which ones you can pick up and fill with the pieces you've got currently in your pool. And this is all a game that, well, you know all the rules by now. It still takes about 30 minutes. So it feels like a real game. It's mm-hmm. got spatial placement. And it's really nicely produced, gorgeous, and fun. Yeah, it's got a nice sense of progress. Because as you go forward, and you, know, you get more and more pieces. And you get more and, and you more. can do more and more. Yeah. And you can fill those big grids. So yeah, it has the engine building kind of progression feel to it. Yeah. Again, 30 minutes. Yeah, I was really close to backing this when the Kickstarter came out. And I kind of wish I had, but also... Not that this has ever stopped me before. I don't know how often I would get it to the table. Because oh, yeah. a lot of these games, you need to have people in a specific mood or a specific mindset mm-hmm. to get the spatial arrangement games going. Yeah, uh, This does look like a, a pretty good example of the genre, though. You know, totally. I kind of disagree with that. I feel like spatial arrangement is one of those ones that's a little easier to get to the table. Only because I think this is something that works a lot easier with people who are not board gamers. Yeah, fair enough. We often have like an opener or closer where we're waiting for one person to show up because mm-hmm. they're stuck in traffic or, you know, we want to do one more game after the big game, but we don't have much time. Yeah, and a lot of these tend to be quick. Yeah. yeah. And fill a good role as those filler games. We've clearly moved on to our genre analysis here, but I feel like this is one that occupies a really interesting space in board gaming because it's like it is generally appealing to a a lot of people. It tends to be on the quicker side of games and there isn't a lot of rules explanation. Mm -hmm. Like if you've played one of them, you've pretty much know the rules Mm -hmm. to all of them. Except for antiquity. Except for antiquity, which like (laughs) if you're playing antiquity, get out before Frank Frank locks the door. (laughs) I mean, certainly there are some, you know, like your Princes of Florence that get a little more complicated in terms of scoring, but especially the abstract ones you can really fit together. The one thing is there are certain people for whatever reason, not everyone is good at spatial arrangement and visualization. I'm raising my hand. Quietly raising his hand over here. (laughs) And you may still enjoy them, even if you're not good at them, but it is not for everyone. Joe, you're making a sad face. No, dog is... Dog is being dog. Whoa, dog breath. (laughs) (laughs) Sam doing? Breathing. She's getting a butt scratch. Breathing, mostly. Well, I can't stop her from breathing. <laughs> I mean, you, you could, can. You could. Uh, we at the Ascent of Board Games do not recommend <laughs> or endorse this sort of behavior. Okay. Now, Frank made a weird face. I thought oh. she had done something. Oh, I got a full. I got a full. It was just a little dog. Which full is on dog, <laughs> dog breath is fine. Yeah, dog breath. Uh, is fine. Dog Yeah, we like dog breath. Anyway, that's our list of spatial arrangement games. Obviously, there's a ton more out there. If you've got favorites that you want to tell us about, or if you want to tell us that we're wrong about some of them, you know where to find us. <laughs> Sorry, the dog's going nuts. It's getting a little, it's getting a little <laughs> weird here. Down. 
in Joe's lap, but there was a chair in the way, so she was lying, but like half of her body was propped up on a chair. She was very confused. That's fair. Sorry. No, no, no. Try that closer. Uh, that's again, quite all right. But anyway, yeah, now it's your turn. If you have any particular <laughs> favorites that you want to tell us about or you want to tell us we were wrong on some of these, look us up on Facebook, tag us on Twitter. If you like what you're listening to and would like to help us find more listeners, a review on iTunes is always welcome and appreciated. Or maybe if you want to defend Carcassonne. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm fine I, if you uh, like Carcassonne. I just, it's not, like I said, it's not for it's me. It's a perfectly cromulent game that everyone should play at some point in their career. But they, they should also realize that they can move past it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, let us know what you think. Come to AscendantBoardGames.com. Vote on the poll for what we should do next. I think that's it. We'll talk to you folks next month. Bye. 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 We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at AscentofBoardGames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. Line piece, what a and every god, line piece.